You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. Caesar was in Gaul to stay, and he believed he could do anything to anybody. Gaul is a whole divided into three parts. Gaul is a whole divided into three parts. Gaul is a whole divided into three parts. At first, we do nothing. A tribal dispute with our southern neighbors. A migration unasked for. We see you use permission as pretext. Some among us choose sides. Others stay distant, watching. But the season turns. We see you chase down the migrating tribesmen. By now, it's not just the warriors. It's women and children run into the ground. Still, most of us hold back, keep our counsel, and protect our own. Your numbers multiply. Soon, you're pouring over the mountains and spreading across the countryside like flies over a corpse's body. You pursue us into the freezing marshes of the northern wastes, and you pursue us to the high cliffs that border the Iron Sea. You harry us through the fields of summer wheat and the groves of whispering oak. By the second spring, the front is everywhere. We fight you in the fords, knee-deep in the blood of our countrymen. We fight you in the blooming pastures where we once laid down with our wives, standing on the piled-high corpses of our brothers and fathers. We catch the enemy's spears and hurl them back in the enemy's faces. Still, you come. We hide ourselves behind high walls and you crack our cities like rocks between a giant's teeth. With our own flesh and bone, we stand in the breaches. With our bare hands, we hurl fire at the siege engines. Still, you come on. On. You roll right over us, plow right under us. By the thousands, you take our women and children into slavery and drive us into the ground. In ancient times, there was honor in warfare. Our ancestors fought in single combat, defended their names with battle hymns on their lips. But there is no honor in this. You turn us against each other with subterfuge and subtlety. Brother against brother, you turn us. There is nothing in the end we can defend. We flee to the last of our strongholds, setting fires as we 
go, our beautiful cities, the homes we were born in, the fields of summer wheat where once our children played as the sun set, the ancient oak forests where our druids harvested mistletoe, the forests that kept our secrets. If we want to live, everything we love must burn. Take our broadswords, take our rumbling chariots of war, our valiant horses, our sturdy cattle, take our great war trumpets, break them and bury them in the deep of the deepest pits. No longer may the hills ring with their battle songs, no longer may we sing our paeans, take our stories, take the heroes whose tales we told beneath the rafters of our mead halls, take our gods who stood as smoke against you, take the gold offerings piled high in the sacred groves, parade them through your city, then melt them into coins to commemorate your victory, take our bones to pave the streets of Rome, take our blood to feed the ambition of Caesar, burn our hearts in your braziers, make us ash and dust and one with our dismembered country, take all that we were, our myth and our memory, divide us into three parts, the dead, the enslaved, and the Romanized. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So in the past few episodes, we started with the first half of the life of Caesar. We looked at his early political career and motivations and took a deep dive into the political element in which he swam. Then we took a close look at the Gauls, who they were and what made them tick, based on Gallic archaeology, the records of other Mediterranean writers, and an ancient Celtic epic from Ireland that may have been based on older tales from Gaul. And now we're finally sending Caesar and his army on a collision course toward the people of Gaul. This was an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object, the disciplined might of the Roman Empire coming up against an epic warrior culture that had existed in this place for centuries. Only one would emerge alive. So let's get on with the story. Caesar, as we discussed a few episodes ago, had reasons for invading free Gaul. He had just been made governor of both Cis and Transalpine Gaul. He needed cash. He needed to get it without plundering his governorships because those optics were bad. Because as we've said before, Caesar made his reputation by prosecuting people who plundered their governorships. He was the non-corruption candidate and he couldn't be seen to like now be corrupt. But the thing is, Caesar was really in debt. He was really in debt. And this was dire straits because if you went into debt in ancient Rome and couldn't pay back your creditors, one of the things that could happen to you was you could be sold into slavery. Caesar also needed a big victory to boost his popularity and insulate him against his political enemies. And as we said, he needed money because he'd put himself deep in debt to secure his political victories. If he didn't win in Gaul and didn't win another political position right away when his governorship ended, Caesar stood to lose everything, his career, his estates, and even his freedom, the stakes for Julius Caesar were very high. Gaul was Rome's traditional enemy, the scary bedtime story that had frightened Roman children since the first sack of Rome in 390 BC, and Caesar knew the tribes north of Transalpine Gaul weren't strongly allied. Free Gaul was ripe for the picking. So in 58 BC, as soon as he came into his governorship, Caesar immediately started looking for an excuse to invade to the north of Transalpine Gaul, into the areas of Gaul not already controlled by the Romans, which at this point was most of France, up into Belgium, a little bit of Germany. It wasn't extremely well-defined, but that's the general area. Because, remember, Caesar needed public support back home, his war had to look justified, and a free Gallic tribe called the Helvetii played right into his hands. The Helvetii wanted to migrate, and its leaders petitioned Caesar to let them pass through Roman-controlled areas of Gaul peacefully. This was a fairly routine request, but instead of granting it, Caesar manufactured some outrage. Wasn't it true that this very 
Barbari tribe killed a Roman consul back in 107 BC, seven years before Caesar was born. So Caesar's 42. So we're talking over 50 years ago. Didn't this tribe attack a consul back, you know, 50 years in the past? Didn't their chieftain Orgatorix have a documented agenda of making himself ruler of Gaul? And wouldn't their planned route take them through the territory of the Adri, a tribe who was allied to Rome? Caesar could not just let a known aggressor wander around in allied territory unsupervised. That wouldn't be right. Heaven forfend. So when the Helvetii asked for permission to cross Roman territory, Caesar told them, no. He stalled them for two weeks while he had his troops build fortifications and destroy bridges to keep them from crossing a river they needed to cross. And when they found an alternate route, Caesar harassed them for months in a campaign that wound up killing two-thirds of all men, women, and children in the Helvetii tribe. Meanwhile, about four years before Caesar became governor, one Gallic tribe, the Sequani, had invited a Germanic tribe, the Swabi, to help them fight the Aedui, that Gallic tribe allied to Rome. So the Swabi were basically Germanic mercenaries. The Swabi defeated the Aedui as they were hired to do and then subjugated them. And then they turned around and did the exact same thing to the Sequani the tribe that they were supposed to be fighting for. For the past four years, the Swabi had been tyrannizing both Gallic tribes. Their king, Ariovistus, was known for his arbitrary cruelty. I mean, we should introduce these guys to the Carthaginians. I was just thinking that. It's like the worst client ever meets the worst contractor ever. (laughs) Oh my God, this is how they wound up with the Death Star. (laughs) This is why there's a hole in the Death Star. (laughs) It's the Carthaginians and the Swaby working together. So we've now solved a massive plot hole in Star Wars. I mean, forget about Rogue One. Yeah, the real story is just the Swaby and the Carthaginians. Worst contractor ever. Worst client ever. There's not enough Cheetos in the world. Cover them all in Cheeto dust. (laughs) What does that even mean? I don't know. I'm just going to keep going. Let's forge ahead. And for the past four years, helping the Aedui had not been a Roman priority, even though the Aedui were their allies and they were supposed to help out when stuff like this happened. Diviciacus, a druid of the Aedui tribe, had traveled to Rome a few years ago to beg the Senate for help. The Senate had brushed him off and then had the gall to declare Ariovistus a friend of Rome for some reason. I don't know why. Just to rub it in, right? That's what I do. Because you're a chode bag. <laughs> That's what the warp spasm voice would do because the warp spasm voice doesn't give a shit. No, the warp spasm voice is on the side of the druids. Cucullin, is that you? <laughs> yes, it is I, Cucullin. <laughs> Are you going to read the rest of the episode? Only if you'll have me. I totally will. This is where I shall plant my sword. <laughs> <laughs> What are we doing? I don't know. We need to be recording. Why are we fucking around? Cucullin, will you stop distracting me? I'm trying to tell a story here. So suddenly, this was priority number one for Caesar. Roman allies were being oppressed. This could not be born. He finished up grinding the Helvetii under his heel and then marched to the rescue of the Aedui. Finally, somebody cares what is happening with the Aedui. The Druid, Viciacus, who traveled to Rome to try to get help for the Aedui, had given Caesar a heartbreaking account of Ariovistus's cruelty. Quote, No sooner did Ariovistus defeat the forces of the Gauls in battle, then he began to lord it haughtily and cruelly, to demand as hostages the children of all the principal nobles, and to wreak on them every kind of cruelty. If everything was not done at his nod or pleasure, then he was a savage, passionate, and reckless man, and his commands could no longer be borne. Back to a savage, passionate, and reckless man, Caesar was currently on the lookout for pretext to beat up on free Gaul. And he... 
Jen, what's that smell? Opportunity. I mean, it smells just like toxic masculinity to me. I mean, one and the same in this episode. Apparently so. But Caesar wasn't going to start a fight without making it look like he'd followed protocol. He needed his battles to be justified. So Caesar reassured Divisiacus and the other visiting Gauls. He said, don't worry guys, I'll go talk to this Ariovistus and I'll make him see reason and if he doesn't see reason, maybe he'll notice my very powerful army just hanging around outside, not looking threatening, but totally, totally threatening. Yeah, just, you know, hanging out, sharpening their weapons. And their eagles, Jenny, we forgot the eagles. Oh, right, and all the shiny eagles. Caw, caw. <laughs> Caesar, <laughs> like this is the second time I've had to say, what am I doing? Caesar was hoping this would come down to a fight, obviously. He probably planned to make it come down to a fight even if it didn't, but he needed the optics to be just right. Like I said, his attacks had to look justified. So Caesar sent a message to this area vistas demanding that he pick an intermediate spot for the two to meet and have a friendly conversation over coffee and just sort out this whole subjugating the Adrian Sequani misunderstanding that has been going on. Ari Vistus just completely busted a gut when he got this message. He said basically that since Caesar was the one who wanted this meeting so badly, Caesar could come to him. Like, no, I just am not going there. No, I have everything I need right here. Why can't you come to me? Anyway, Ariovistus has told Caesar that he can just show up himself if he wants this meeting so badly. And then there was some passive aggressive back and forth on this. Both sides made some threatening noises and eventually the two wound up scheduling a time to meet in person. And here is where Caesar ran into a spot of difficulty. On his way to the meeting point, Caesar stopped off for a few days to gather provisions. While the men in his army bought supplies from Gallic tribes, they naturally asked, so these German guys were going to go meet and fight. What's the DL on those guys? And they did not like what they heard. The Gallic traders described terrifying men of giant stature, incredible skill at fighting, and unbelievable toughness. And remember, the Romans thought the Gauls were incredibly large, warlike, and tough. But the Gauls were saying, nah, dude, these Germans make us look like kittens. Meow. Where's Heloise? <laughs> Heloise says, yeah, these guys look like kittens. I should know because I'm a kitten. Oh. All right, Heloise. Calm down. I got to tell a story now. My one tell in life is making cat noises. Just let me have this, Jen. No, it is time for a story. Sorry, Cucullin. I'll shut up now. <laughs> It started with the tribunes and the prefix, higher-ranking officers who didn't have a lot of actual military experience and who had their positions because they were friends with Caesar. They started making noises that maybe they should sit this one out because all of a sudden their sinuses were acting up and they were like sneezing and a little congested and, oh, uh, can't do this right now, Caesar. Sorry. I mean, the allergies in ancient Gaul. The hay fever, it was just, it was, it was brutal. But... Caesar had a fight to pick, and he basically rolled his eyes at these excuses, and this led to the officers bursting into tears in public, hiding in their tents, and, key thing here, bewailing their fates to their men. These officers were not army strong. No, they were having a full-blown freak out. They were really not okay with this, and they were letting that fear and anxiety spread. So pretty soon... Panic had spread throughout the entire army, and suddenly, even the rank and file were dictating their wills and hiding in their tents. Higher-ranked officers worked harder to persuade Caesar to give up on this whole thing, saying the roads were narrow, the forest was vast, and how were they going to get the supply chain all the way over there? The officers even declared, somewhat ominously, that considering the mood in the camp, they didn't even 
know if they could get their soldiers to march when the order came down. Of course, if the troops refused Caesar's orders, that would be mutiny. A lesser commander might have seriously rethought giving this order at this point because the last thing he needed right now was a troop revolt on his hands. We saw that, actually, in our last season with Nero. Whose troops refused to assassinate his mom. Maybe a lesser commander might think if his officers were warning him that the troops might not listen to that order, he should rethink that order. Maybe only give orders he was sure his troops would obey. But... This was not a lesser commander. This, as I must remind you, was Julius fucking Caesar. Caesar called a council of all his officers, and he started off with a clarification of everyone's roles. He said, look, you're the officers, and I'm the general. That means it's my job to decide what direction we march in and why we're marching in that direction. And it's your job to not question it. Everyone clear on that? Good. And as for these logistical concerns, the road being too narrow, the forest too vast, and all these other extremely transparent excuses, I'm going to need you guys to actually back off on that line of questioning, because it's my job to worry about that, not your job. I'm Julius fucking Caesar, and I'm the general. Yes, so just in case anyone is confused on who I am and who you are, hopefully this clears it up. And then he went on to, you know, his giving them some reassurance. He says, this Ariovistus guy, he's not that scary. He was declared a friend of the Roman people a couple years back, and there's no reason this even has to come to a fight. But if it does, why assume we're not up to the challenge? After all, Marius fought these guys a few decades ago and won. The Helvetii even defeated them in battle at one point, and we just beat those guys. So look, it's going to be fine either way. Yeah, and furthermore, as to this possibility of mutiny that you guys keep bringing up, I think you're underestimating the troops. I have faith in their loyalty and courage. But if I do give that order and nobody else follows, I'd just as soon go with the 10th Legion at my back because those guys are my favorite legion. Matter of fact, I'm making them my Praetorian cohort. And also, you know how I said we were marching in a couple of days? Actually, we're going to march right now. Go pack your shit. And this speech shows just exactly how good a leader Caesar was. He set up competition by singling out one legion among many as his most trusted. Suddenly, all the other legions were keen to prove that they were just as good as the 10th. I don't know if he picked the 10th at random, but it worked. He assuaged their fears, but he wasn't a soft touch. He also set hard boundaries about everyone's role and everyone's job and upped the pressure by marching quickly and also projected a serene confidence the whole time that a mutiny was completely out of the question, you guys are dopes. And furthermore, he did this all without threatening or punishing anyone, which was really good for morale. So you could see why the officers were suddenly scrambling all over each other to carry out his orders. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So Caesar managed his mischief among the legions, got everyone together, and pointed them in the direction of Ariovistus. The two of them met up, and Ariovistus had an answer for all these spurious Aedui accusations, quote-unquote. He said that first off, he hadn't invaded Gaul under his own steam. He'd been invited, and sure, he'd made war, but he didn't start the conflict. He'd merely warded it off. Furthermore, 
Furthermore, crossing the Rhine was a big endeavor. He'd never have done it without the expectation of some reward at the end. Ariovistus does not leave his house with his body unless there's some kind of reward in it for him. Look, Ariovistus is a lot like me. He does not do his hair, put his makeup on, get himself looking all great, leave that house without the assumption that good things are going to come his way. Otherwise, you know what? He's going to stay inside in his pajama bottoms, watching Netflix or reading a good novel. That's right. Ariovistus has everything he needs right there in his house. He's not going to leave his house unless unless there's something in it for him. He can even do his yoga from YouTube in his house. And yes, we know he can't. I don't see why he can't, Jen. He can do whatever he wants. He's Ariovistus. Because it didn't exist then. But if it did, that's what he would do. He'd be an Instagram fame boy. He'd have a man bun. Oh my God. I'm picturing him with a man bun right now. And a mustache. Mustache? Mustache. <laughs> anyway, this is just all to say that his settlements in Gaul had been granted to him by the Gauls themselves. So back off, Caesar. This is not your fight. And secondly, those hostages the Idwi mentioned, they were willingly provided by the Gauls in accordance with long-standing custom to secure friendly relations. And he may have had a point there. Fosterage was a big part of Celtic culture. Remember in the cattle raid of Cooley, the huge boy troop living at King Concavor's castle? Those were all sons of lesser kings in the area sent to Concavor as a guarantee of their allegiance. Essentially, hostages. So this was a thing that these groups of tribes did a lot to encourage cooperation for lots of different reasons. Because they were hostages and you weren't going to act up when your son and heir was living with another king. And third, as to those accusations of cruelty, Ariovistus also said that the part of Gaul he ruled over was his province, just as the region to the south was a Roman province. He didn't tell Caesar how to govern his province in Gaul, so Caesar shouldn't tell him how to govern his own. In other words, but the fuck out, JC. And one last thing, because Ariovistus is not done. He wasn't some unsophisticated person who had no idea what was going on in the wider world. He said somewhat ominously that he was fully aware of the political landscape in Rome, and he had a hunch that if he struck Caesar down right now, there are plenty of powerful people down there who'd reward him for it. They might even throw him a triumph, but he'd let Caesar go from his territory unharmed so long as he went without causing trouble, because that is how magnanimous a guy he was. I mean, that is a mic drop. I know, right? Ariovistus has a point. He really does have a point. And this, as you can imagine, did not result in a ramping down of hostilities. Caesar refused to back down, and suddenly it was war. Right. The only way that this whole situation would have not played into Caesar's hands was if Ariovistus just capitulated right away and gave him no reason to attack. Yeah, and Ariovistus was like, here's the thing, bud. If I took your head off right now they'd throw me a parade. So I think you just need to go back to your side. You do your thing. Leave me alone to rule as I want to rule. I'm not going to bother you, but you stay the hell out of my territory. Taken that way, he actually sounds pretty reasonable. He was doing some bad things. Like, I've given you some reason, but he wasn't really. <laughs> you can fall into the rabbit hole of whether or not the Aedui were really being subjugated or whether they just wanted to pull Caesar into this dispute that they had with these other groups. And you also have to bear in mind that Caesar Caesar is the POV character here and it's in his interest to make you believe that atrocities were happening so that his invasion looks like kind of like a humanitarian mission. And that's kind of the trouble with using the commentaries as your guide in the Gallic Wars because before long you're just questioning everything, you're questioning your whole existence, and it is kind of a mindfuck. 
Caesar gives us this detail in the commentaries about how Ariovistus piled up his chariots and wagons in a wall behind his army so they literally couldn't flee from battle. And on top of it, they put their women who, quote, with disheveled hair and in tears, entreated the soldiers as they went forward into battle not to deliver them into slavery to the Romans. This was a big part of Germanic culture. Warriors' whole families rode with them to war, and it was customary for women to weep and bare their breasts and beg their men not to let them be sold into slavery if they started to flag in battle. And we talk more about this in the Atolf and Gala Placidia episode, although obviously that episode is set much further in the future from this one. There's some Tacitus stuff about Germanic culture and how that worked and comparing Germanic martial culture to Roman martial culture. It's pretty interesting. The Germans fought in a tightly packed unit, forming a shield wall to sustain the Roman attack. But according to Caesar, quote, many of our soldiers leaped upon the phalanx and with their hands tore away the shields and wounded the enemy from above. And I just have to stop here and talk about that. It takes a special kind of badass to jump on top of a shield wall and stab down at the masses of seething, roiling bodies, wielding spears and swords below, all of them intent on murdering you. You can just imagine the chaos in that. So I would say that everybody who was not the 10th Legion were really trying hard to prove themselves in this moment. And probably the 10th Legion as well. I mean, they were like, we must show everyone else that we are the great 10th Legion. We're not afraid to jump the shield wall and stab at people. I mean, I still kind of think Caesar just picked them out at random and they're like, yes, we are the best. What a way to motivate. Anyway, the women's entreaties were in vain. Caesar's forces chased Ariovistus across the Rhine and back into Germany. Assumedly, a lot of those women were taken into slavery. Both of Ariovistus' wives and one of his daughters was killed in the rout. Ariovistus doesn't appear in the record again after he fled across the Rhine. We don't know what happened to him, but Tacitus would tell us his end was probably grim. He mentions that, quote, To throw away one's shield is the supreme disgrace. Many such survivors from the battlefield have ended their shame by hanging themselves. But Ariovistus really sticks with me because, first of all, his story shows that no one was really that isolated in this world. Even the more northern tribes far from Rome had ways of getting information. And two, he said out loud what a lot of Gauls were probably thinking. Caesar was beyond the boundaries of his own province, and what business did he even have being there? Caesar had just become governor of Transalpine Gaul, and already he was taking a very hands-on, violent approach to managing things in areas distinctly north of his own boundaries. And that made many Gallic tribal leaders twitchy. I mean, it's making me twitchy just reading it. In 57 BC, the Belgae tribes decided to take decisive action to drive Caesar out. Caesar's commentaries, his account of the Gallic War, begin with an iconic line, Gaul is a whole divided into three parts. He divides Gaul into the Belgae, the Aquitani, and somewhat confusingly, the Celts. He describes the Belgae in northern Gaul around modern-day Belgium as the bravest, fiercest, and most, quote, barbarian of the three groups, farthest to the north and most isolated from the civilizing influence of trade contact with the Mediterranean world. Although we've seen this with Ariovistus, this was probably more stereotype than the truth. Yeah, because Ariovistus was really plugged in and no doubt other people were too. Well, yeah, I feel like everyone in this area would have had like some intel on Caesar. This group of tribes, the Belgae, was the first to seriously come together to oppose Caesar. And this went somewhat against their nature. The free Gallic tribes were not a unified front. They were a collection of warrior societies who gained status and territory by raiding one another. Intertribal feuds could go back centuries. But now they were preparing to do something they almost never did, set aside regional differences and unite against Caesar. Sometime in the winter of 57 BC, the tribes of the Belgae began exchanging hostages and making plans. And as soon as he found out about those plans, Caesar started marching north toward Belgae territory. 
Caesar's spies told him that a host of about 289,000 people was gathering against him, and his first step was to divide them. He called the druid Divisiacus to his tent, and he was a leader and statesman of the age we. You see Divisiacus being called upon to do worse and worse things as the story goes on. Caesar pointed out how bad this was for both Roman and Aedui security to have a force this big gathering to the north. It was crucial to divide and conquer, and Divisiacus was the only one who could do it. Caesar ordered him to persuade his chieftains to gather their forces because, remember, Druids weren't fighters themselves. Lead them into the home territories of some of these rebel tribes and lay their countries to waste. Burn their towns, kill their livestock, torch their fields, and terrorize their families. Here you see Caesar dividing and conquering. He's getting a Gallic ally to attack rebel Gauls in a way specially designed to fracture the opposing forces, because those tribes whose towns were under attack would have to rush home and defend them. But Divisiacus couldn't attack every homeland, and a large host of rebel Belge troops was now on the move. Their first target was Bibrax, which was a Roman-friendly Gallic town in northern France. And you see the Gallic rebels do this a lot. They attack other Gallic towns that are allied to Rome. The Belgae rebels besieged the town, and Caesar sent a crack team of snipers, basically archers and slingers, to defend the town and shoot down bolts from the walls and take out the enemy. The team of snipers held off the Belgae easily, and the united Belgae tribes were forced to retreat into the countryside where they burned out the surrounding Roman-allied towns and farmsteads. When Caesar caught up to their camp, he found Belgae campfires spread out over an area of eight miles. This was a gigantic army. They were too numerous to attack directly, so Caesar found some high ground outside the town of Bibrax, dug in, and waited. Caesar's position was very strong. He built elaborate fortifications and engineered it so that the only approach to his fortified camp was through a marsh and up a steep hill. And this is not as good for Caesar as it sounded. Adrian Goldsworthy points out that this is often a problem for armies whose position is too strong. If you want the adversary to attack, you have to let them see an opening. And it can't be too obvious an opening. You have to be clever about it. So the Belgae, despite outnumbering Caesar, decided not to attack him at all, but rather to wait for Caesar to get impatient and calm down and fight them on more advantageous ground for them. But this plan had its drawbacks too. See, the Belgae didn't have a supply chain. Warriors tended to bring only what they and their wives and attendants could carry. Armies could forage, but the larger the army, the more quickly they exhausted the land. And this army was huge. Remember, we said it's like eight miles long. So when it came to the waiting game, the Belgae were actually in a worse position than Caesar. So the tribal leaders sat down and had a talk. They decided they'd actually done what they'd come to do. They'd showed their strength to the Romans, intimidated Caesar so much that he'd refused to come down from his hill and fight them on equal ground. And that's how they spun it to their warriors, because Caesar wasn't the only spin doctor in town. They pledged to come to each other's aid if any of their number came under a Roman attack. And then they packed up in the night and headed home. But the retreating Belgate did not make it home in time. Caesar, seeing what was happening, immediately force-marched his army out ahead of the dispersing forces and attacked their undefended hometowns. The druid Divisiacus pled clemency for the Belgae, and Caesar agreed not to kill everyone, but he demanded 600 hostages from Belgae-leading families. Hostage-taking was part of Gallic culture, as we said, but 600 hostages was seen as egregious, even for them. 
With their children in Caesar's hands, the Belgae alliance was broken. Only one of its members were still willing to stand against the Romans, the Nervi. The Nervi lived so far north they weren't even in France. Their homeland was in modern-day Belgium. And even among other warlike Celtic tribes, the Nervi were legendary for their ferocity in battle. They saw the other Belgae packing up and heading home and said, right, I guess it's down to us. The Nervi did not play it the way other Celtic and Germanic tribes did. They didn't take their women and children to war. They'd seen what happened to the families of defeated tribes who went up against the Romans. Those who lived were sold into slavery. So as they fled ahead of the Romans, the Nervi evacuated their non-combatant family members to an inaccessible hiding place deep within the marshes. Caesar chased the Nervi down, venturing deep into unconquered northern territory. And the whole way, spy messages were flying fast and furious between these two armies. Through his spies, Caesar found out that the Nervi had about 85,000 troops, more than twice his own. Through their own spies, the Nervi learned how the Roman army deployed itself during its march, where its weak points were, and where it was planning to make camp. The Nervi got to pick their ground. They hid in a wooded area in the path of Caesar's army and set up a massive ambush at the ford of the river Sombra. The Romans, unaware of the army hiding in the trees nearby, arrived at the river and began to make camp. And there were very specific camp-setting protocols for a Roman army on the move in hostile territory. They basically built an entire fortress at the end of each day on very carefully selected ground, complete with ditches, walls, ramparts, roads, and barricades according to set plans. This took time. And in hostile territory, it was crucial to have some troops guarding the area while others were on setup duty because the army was vulnerable while it was setting up camp. But this time, for some reason, Caesar didn't set guards. So when the Nervi attacked, his army was completely unprepared. This was a tire fire. Caesar was personally running around in a flappy panic, calling soldiers in from digging trenches and building barricades to stand in the battle lines. Roman troops had to throw down their spades and scramble for their weapons, booking it back to their legions, there wasn't even time to take the covers off shields or to attach horsehair plumes to helmets. I mean, I feel like the horsehair plumes to helmet is like the detail where I'm like, really? I mean, that is totally preening. <laughs> I mean, bear in mind that there were not that many ways to tell who was a leader and who was your commander on the field. The clothes people were wearing were a big signifier. So I haven't done a whole deep dive into who had a horsehair plume and who didn't. But no, you're right. It's one of the when we talked about the eagles and Germanicus the Manicus, that was one of the ways that they were able to sort of tell where different legions were and where they needed to go if they got lost or separated. Yeah, you're right. I didn't actually think about that. Yeah, one thing about a horsehair plume is that it makes you visible, which can be bad because your enemy will target you more because you're an officer, but it's also good because it means that your men will rally to you in the chaos of battle. They know who you are. They know who the enemy is. Caesar ran from legion to legion, encouraging his troops and joining in wherever the frontline fighting was fiercest. And this was unusual for Roman generals. With one particularly beleaguered legion, Caesar snatched up a shield from a fallen soldier and rallied his soldiers by name, inspiring a legion on the verge of retreat to push forward and keep the Nervi in check. Because the stakes were high for Caesar. He'd bet everything on his campaign in Gaul. He was in debt up to his eyeballs. The public prosecutors were sharpening their knives, and his political enemies were just salivating at the chance to get at him. He bet it all on a big, dramatic win, a Hail Mary pass. If he lost in Gaul, he might as well die here. 
The Nervi, meanwhile, fought with all they had. They were the last remnants of the Belgae resistance. If they fell, a third of Gaul would fall with them. They were fighting for their homeland, for their loved ones hidden in the swamps. Picture thousands of Cucullans knee-deep in the fords, standing between the army of Connaught and everything they loved. It was a brutal battle, and by the end of it, the Nervi fought standing on the piled-up corpses of their brothers, fathers, and friends, catching Roman javelins in midair and hurling them back in the enemy's faces. Shows of heroism happened that day that belonged in a thousand-year epic. Men fought and died who deserved to be named heroes, remembered down through the present day in epic cycles of poetry. But that epic never got written, because the only person who wrote down what happened that day was Julius Caesar. He knew the names of individual legionaries in his own army, but not one of the heroes of the Nervi. Despite a brutal reign of javelins, arrows, and sling stones, not one of the Nervi was seen to flee. They gave everything. It wasn't enough. Despite outnumbering the Romans, despite having the advantage of surprise, despite choosing their ground carefully, and despite their unimaginable courage, the Nervi lost. Out of 85,000 warriors, only about 500 survived this battle. This was a disaster for the Gauls. With the defeat of the Nervi, Caesar was within a thread of holding control of all Belgae territory. A third of free Gaul was no longer free. There were still some holdouts. A tribe called the Atuatuci holed up in a hill fort, but when they saw the Romans wheeling their siege engines up to the walls, they surrendered quickly, even throwing their weapons over the wall, creating a pile of weapons allegedly as tall as the city walls themselves. Caesar accepted the surrender and even shut the city gate to stop his own soldiers from entering the town, to prevent plundering and to protect the populace. But some of the Atuatuci warriors hid their weapons in their houses, and when night fell, they ventured out of the town walls to attack the Romans. Caesar's vengeance was swift. His forces killed most of the attackers and then he sold every single surviving person in that town into slavery. According to the commentaries, Caesar sold over 53,000 men, women, and children for one flat price to a merchant group who'd been following his army. There were slave merchants, by the way, following Caesar's army. This was one of the ways Caesar recouped his investment in this war by selling slaves. I feel like if you don't know that much about Julius Caesar and you listen to the two episodes we did on his life before the Gallic Wars, you can kind of be forgiven for liking Caesar. Like, he's kind of fun. Right? He gets kidnapped by pirates. He stands up to Sulla. I unabashedly admit that Caesar was not my guy. Didn't know a lot about him. And when Jenny was pitching me this series, she was like, oh, yeah, he gets kidnapped by pirates and then harasses his kidnappers into extorting more money. And wait, let me tell you the best bit. While he's there, he makes them listen to his terrible poetry. But the thing is, there aren't really any good guys. This episode is basically where Caesar does a big heel face turn. And it's pretty clear from here on out, he's the villain in the story. And this is just one of the extremely reprehensible things that he does in Gaul. He is the unreliable narrator that we are stuck with. From 58 to 55 BC, a period of about three years, Caesar rampaged unchecked through northern Gaul, wreaking havoc wherever he went. He defeated Gallic tribes by land and by sea, slaughtering ruling families and selling the survivors into slavery. He ravaged the land, burning forests and crops, and killing livestock so rebels would have nowhere to hide and nothing to subsist on. And while he was at it, he engaged in a campaign of large-scale larceny. The Gauls, as we've talked about before, were not poor. In our previous episodes, we talked about the glittering jewelry, massive plates, chariot fittings, and other stunning artwork in gold and precious jewels that were a hallmark of this culture. The tribes of Free Gaul had enriched themselves massively through centuries of trade with Mediterranean cultures, including the Romans, and now Caesar set about plundering all that wealth. 
Over hundreds of years, the Gauls had set up altars to their gods in massive oak groves, stacking them high with precious offerings. Local people didn't dare disturb objects that had been dedicated to the gods, but Caesar pillaged any altars he came across, as well as the cities and towns he defeated. It was theft on an epic scale, and Caesar enriched himself massively. These victories kept Caesar in the public eye while he was in Gaul. When he wasn't slaughtering people, raiding sacred shrines, and taking slaves, Caesar found time to write the commentaries in which he constantly refers to himself in the third person. Caesar this and Caesar that. And I'm like, dude, I know who's writing this. You can quit. He also, Jenny, found time to write a book on Latin grammar. I mean, Jenny, he was a massive grammar nerd like you. And Caesar dedicated this tome on Latin grammar to Cicero, who was also a famous orator and grammar aficionado. He has strong feelings about grammar. He did. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, I don't know what Latin grammar is as opposed to like English grammar. It's a lot more declensions and what even is a declension? What is that? Now you're testing me. I feel like the declensions have to do with the gender and you go through whether it's plural or singular because you don't have apostrophes in Latin. The declensions also tell you the tense. So like there are certain declensions that will tell you this is like first person past tense based on the ending. That is super fascinating, actually. I didn't know that. Well, now you do. I could be wrong, guys. I've been out of school a long time, but I'm pretty sure that's right. I have no way to check on that unless I Google it and I'm not going to do that. I mean, we could check by actually just looking this up on the interwebs, but we're not going to. (laughs) What you're getting is what's off the top of our heads, which is always a little bit untrustworthy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things where like, actually, as an adult, I kind of want to like go back and learn Latin again, because I feel like I'd have a better grasp of it than I did as a teenager. Yeah, you could read the Latin commentaries and listen to Caesar aggrandize himself in the original Latin. Oh, boy. By the end of his first year in Gaul, the most powerful tribes of the Belgae, the ones who stood the best chance of standing against Caesar, had been defeated, slaughtered, and sold into slavery, including the heroic Nervi. And that must have sent a strong message to other, less powerful tribes among the Belgae. The only ones left were the smaller tribes. Some of these capitulated quickly, but others tried to stand and fight. But to stand a chance against the Romans, these smaller tribes had to be united in their purpose. And this was not easy. The stakes were so high, people saw what happened to the other tribes, and it was hard to build a consensus to fight. Could you blame Gallic leaders who tried to convince their people to capitulate instead of fighting? True, they'd have to submit to Roman rule, but at least they wouldn't have to watch their loved ones be sold into slavery. I mean, what would you do? What would you do, Jen? I don't know. I want to believe that I would stand and fight because you know what the stakes are, but there's so many moving parts. If you stand and fight and you lose, then everyone and everything you love will be taken from you. And if you don't stand and fight, Julius Caesar might just railroad over and take it anyway. It was just a terrible paradox to be in. It's a terrible situation to be in, but I really do sympathize with the tribes who didn't want to fight because they're seeing even tribes a lot stronger than them lose. I could see them making the calculus and deciding, you know what, I can't let my family be sold into slavery, all of them. I can't fight because I know I'm going to lose. And I mean, they've just seen 85,000 nearby walk onto a battlefield and 500 come off of that field, not as victors. So the lesser tribes were conflicted. They began to form alliances. But these were unsteady, and they couldn't decide among themselves whether it was better to fight or surrender. Gallic leaders were murdered by their own, both for urging their followers to fight and to make peace, and new leaders were raised in their place. 
Meanwhile, Caesar's deadly war machine ground on, crushing free Gaul into powder. It's also important to note that for the first half of his campaign, Caesar was mainly active in northern Gaul. The central and southern regions also turned a blind eye. Why? There were several reasons. First, these southern and central tribes were more Romanized than the northern Belgae tribes, even though they weren't technically under Roman control. They were used to giving safe passage to Roman armies on their way somewhere, and even helping in their conflicts. That was part of the deal of being a Roman ally. As was customary, many of them had assisted Caesar, or at least didn't hinder him for the sake of their trade relationships. Second, I'm not sure exactly what the alliances looked like between southern and northern Gallic tribes at this point, but just because everyone in this area more or less was Gallic doesn't mean they'd feel compelled to defend each other or see Caesar's aggression against some of them as aggression against some kind of whole. To the Gauls at this point in history, there was no whole. These tribes didn't define themselves the way outsiders define them as more or less a uniform group. They were used to operating independently, sometimes raiding each other, sometimes feuding, sometimes joining up, and basically doing their own thing. They wouldn't necessarily see each other as natural allies that they had to defend. Third, these southern and central Gallic tribes were not in the future. Many believe Caesar's ambitions in Gaul were more limited than they really were. But that perception was starting to turn. After several years, southern and central tribes were starting to realize that Caesar wasn't just there to beat up on northern Gaul for a few years and then leave. Goldsworthy says, quote, Rome now expected her power to be acknowledged on a permanent basis throughout Gaul. The ally had become the conqueror without ever facing serious resistance from the Celtic peoples. And these tribes were also coming to realize that Roman control meant a complete breakdown of their way of life. And again, to quote Goldsworthy, quote, warfare had long played a central role in Gallic culture and society, and chieftains were first and foremost war leaders, whose power was shown by the number of warriors in their retinue. Tribes were no longer as free to fight each other, and martial glory could now only be won fighting as allies of the Roman army. Powerful chieftains knew that seizing kingship amongst their own people would invite swift retribution if the Roman government governor did not approve. It was also harder to create a network of friends, allies, and clients within the leadership of other tribes. The world had changed, and the tribal leaders now found that they lacked full liberty to govern themselves in the traditional way. Also, Caesar had made some political blunders that had turned off his allies among the Gauls, including in his increasingly brutal treatment of high-ranking Gallic chieftains. He'd had one prominent Gallic aristocrat, Akko, publicly flogged and beheaded, a humiliating death that shocked even the Roman-friendly tribes to the south and east. The message to the Gallic world was clear. Caesar was in Gaul to stay. His presence meant the complete breakdown of Gallic culture, and he believed he could do anything to anybody. I mean, that's just the motto of the Julian-Claudian dynasty, isn't it? It seems that way. I mean, the first time we heard that particular quote was from Caligula, but you see that behavior with Nero. You see it with Caligula. Sometimes you even see it with Agrippina the Younger. Totally. And I suspect it existed with Augustus, but he was clever about it. And going all the way back to good old great-great-granddad JC, or great-uncle. Yeah, bearing in mind that Augustus was adopted, so this is not necessarily a tie of blood. He was adopted, but I don't exactly know how that works, because he would have considered him like a father, but he wasn't a biological father, but I think he was an uncle. It's like Conkavor to Kukulin, right? His uncle dad. 
His uncle dad. Exactly. Uncle dad, JC. In early 52 BC, six years after he'd come to Gaul, Caesar had achieved a kind of equilibrium after brutally crushing several major uprisings. He thought he could turn his attention back to Rome. And he needed to, because while Caesar was busy wiping whole communities off the map in Gaul, shit was going down in Rome. Was it ever? I know. There were gang wars in the streets over the election for Praetor. One of the contenders was killed in a street fight, and his supporters burned down the Senate House in the process of creating cremating his body. It was a trash fire down there. Caesar's like, dude, I turned my back for one minute and look what you guys get up to. People were even seriously suggesting that Pompey, of all people, the appointed dictator, which I bet Caesar just loved. What? Pompey? No way. Pompey Shark. Seriously? Pompey Shark the Great? Right. Sit down, Pompey Shark. I mean, the reason that they wanted Pompey Shark in control was because Pompey Shark controlled his own army. And there was no law enforcement in ancient Rome at this time. There was no police. There were no firefighters. Because remember, Crassus was just going into whole neighborhoods and burning it down and then selling the land out from under people and redoing the houses. Right. That is exactly what Crassus was doing. And also, he was definitely lighting those fires. I got it. I got to just call it. Call it like I see it. So anyway, stuff was going down in Rome. And a widespread levy of troops was announced to guard the Roman state against violence because, like we said, no police force. Caesar took advantage of that chaos, traveling to Italy to raise more troops for his campaigns. The widespread troop levy permission was so that troops could be raised to guard the capital and keep order. And Caesar just decided to, under the auspices of this, raise more troops for himself. Because it's all about Caesar. And while Caesar was gone, some of the central and southern Gallic tribes seized the opportunity. According to the commentaries, quote, The leading men of Gaul, having convened councils among themselves in the woods, complain of the death of Akko. Remember, Akko was the guy who got flogged and beheaded in this really humiliating way. Caesar had executed this Gallic aristocrat, Akko, in this really high-handed way, and that turned off a lot of the Gallic chieftains, even the ones he was allied to. They point out that his fate may fall in turn on themselves. They bewail the unhappy fate of Gaul, and by every sort of promises and rewards, they earnestly solicit some to begin the war and assert the freedom of Gaul at the hazard of their lives. A tribe called the Carnutes struck the first blow. They descended on Genaboom, which had once been their town, but now held a sizable population of Roman merchants and soldiers and their families. The Carnutes slaughtered the Romans in Genaboom and threw their bodies in the Loire River. The gauntlet had been thrown down. The news traveled fast by shouts, person to person, neighbor to neighbor. By nightfall, the news about the fall of Genaboom had traveled over 160 miles to Arverni territory and reached a young man named Vercingetorix. And we're going to tell you what happened next in the next episode. So that's it for this week. Tune in two weeks for the next installment of our series on the Gallic Wars. In the meantime, you can catch us on social on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan or Instagram and Facebook at Ancient History Fangirl. We also have a Patreon. We mentioned it at the beginning of the episode and it's worth mentioning it again. It's a great way to support the podcast and there's something else in it for you. Shout outs in an episode, a chance to vote on various things that we've got running on the Patreon and our movie nights. And if you like what we do, there are other ways to support the podcast. Visit our Ko-Fi account and kick us a few bucks. That's also massively appreciated. Or leave us a nice review. We're still building our audience and every little bit helps. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks. 